Welcome to Anxiety and the Artist, the podcast that explores artist's relationship with anxiety, offering insight and inspiration. I'm your host, Allison Sheff. My guest today is Michael Cedar. Michael Cedar is a leadership and life coach focused on helping people who want to make a difference in their world. Some of Michael's clients include Epic Games Fortnite, World Economic Forum, Madison Square Garden, and Sesame Workshop. Prior to becoming a coach, Michael began his career as an actor before moving into company management on Broadway musical bus and truck tours. He was also on the producing team of StarQuest, a national touring dance competition. Today, Michael is the founder of The Legacy of You, a health and wellness company that creates coaching, content, and personal growth experiences. Michael is also the founder and host of The Gratitude Slam, a daily reminder to discipline yourself to focus on the positive side of life. Michael is also one of my oldest and dearest friends, and I am thrilled to have him here today with us. Hi, Michael. Hi. I'm I'm thrilled to be here with you and honored that you've asked me. So tell us a little bit about your background and how anxiety has affected you. I had symptoms and signs of dyslexia, which I still look at it to this day. If I, you know, in the rare times that I actually go, huh, I wonder if dyslexia plays into this. And I look it up, I go, oh, yep, there it is. And so um, being dyslexic and it not really being a cool thing uh, back when I was a kid, it, um, I felt sort of stupid in school because school is a very is designed for traditional uh american education school is designed for complacency in the younger years and um while my friends were able to read the full page and get to the next page and even next chapter i was still busy opening the book and trying to figure out where everybody even was on the page and so i noticed that, or not noticed i what was happening is all of my friends literally all of them um learned differently than I did and received the world differently than I did. And that created great anxiety from number one. Um, in addition to that, um, clinical depression, anxiety runs, it's, it's something that's inside my, you know, DNA, um, from, if we look back in the, over, over the timeline. Uh, but I've never wanted to use that as an excuse. So, uh, so I, I even went to psychiatrists as a kid. And they're like, "Oh, you're depressed." And for some reason, as a kid, I was even like, "I don't want to. I don't want to cloud anything. I don't want right. to go on anything." And so, what I ended up doing, being that all my friends were able to pass school, I got left. I like fourth grade so much. Clearly, I did it twice. Um, <laughs> but I, um, I learned my coping mechanism was how do I connect to people, right? And so. From a super early age, I started even learning, you know, because my father would introduce me to, you know, audio tapes. Whenever there was a problem in my life, my father would find an audio cassette tape and drive around with me in the car and give me an apple pie if I listened to the tape all the way through. And I was listening to Brian Tracy, Nightingale Conan, Tony Robbins, right? And all these things saying, you can achieve whatever you want. You know, what's the, what's the, what's holding you back? And for me, it was, I thought it was intelligence, which of course was really hard and degrading for me as a, as a child. But I did learn how to connect really well to people because I was listening to all these audio cassettes about, how to make friends and influence people at the age of seven and eight years old. And that sort of became my normal. Um, but there was always the anxiety that I wasn't good enough, that I wasn't smart enough or anything like that. Even though the teachers were inviting me into the teacher's lounge to have lunch at that with them at the, in, in sixth and fifth, fourth, fifth and sixth grade, just because I was a great conversationalist. And that's how I got through school. But, um, 
Yeah, I I refuse to look in the mirror ever when I was younger and say I have anxiety or I'm depressed. Um, I just didn't want it. I just didn't want, I, you know, and to this day, maybe I am clinically and maybe I'm not. I don't know. But I was obsessed with learning tools where when I felt down or anxious that I could manipulate myself to figuring out how to move through it without any mm-hmm. sort of drugs. Cause I think I was on like one of the Xantex or Valiums for like a day or two because it was prescribed to me. I was like, no, no. And I was super young, but for some reason I was such the rebellion. I was like, absolutely not. I, there's gotta be another way. So it's impacted me to the point that, um, I wouldn't, as I grew professionally, uh, I wouldn't speak up. Um, I would be afraid to disappoint people. That's a big one, you know? Um, Still don't like it, but I was afraid of it. And there's a big right. difference. And that would cause me such anxiety that there was a point in time where I, I wanted to be a business owner, you know? And I was like, there's no way. There's no way. I was jealous is the word of assholes. I was envious of people who didn't have anxiety, which of course they did, you know, but they, right. they demonstrated that they could disappoint people or say things that would upset people and not have it paralyze them. For me, it was paralyzing. So, um, it only took uh, one divorce. I'm married now. You know that, right? It only took me one divorce, which, thank you, by the way, you were a nice enough of a friend to come to both weddings. Uh, <laughs> but it only it took me one divorce to actually go, something's wrong. And it turned out that anxiety was a huge part of it. Interesting. Um, so I'm going to shift focus for a moment. And we'll come back to that. Um, you are a leadership coach. What is that? And what do you do as a leadership coach? Yeah, Uh and well, I want to start with how I got to leadership coach when I was do- owning, you know, when I was um, leading conversations with people who wanted to throw parties and when I was um, a company manager for Broadway shows and when I was producing the theater, you know, I would actually find that I really didn't like the work itself very much, but I loved helping get the best out of people that were working with me or for me. And that was my favorite thing. And I even went into the dance comp world is, is, was such a big part of my life. I mean, that was 15 seasons I produced over at Starquest under the tutelage of Steve Wapple. And, um, I just found I really just like helping people get the best out of themselves. As a company manager for the Broadway Bus and Truck Tours, my favorite part was helping the actors who truly loved being there get on stage with as little uh, resistance as possible. How can I get them rested at the hotels? Bus and Truck Tours are awful on the body and the, you know, because of the demanding schedules. And that was the part that I loved. And so as I grew as an executive in businesses, the thing I like most is just helping getting stuff out of people. So leadership coaching ended up in my life when I actually learned about it, that it existed there. And um, I have a family member who's in that industry. I was already coaching friends and family and having people pay me, but I didn't realize how big that industry was. And so I was super fortunate to work with some of the best in their class, right? Uh, Working with pro computer programmers and video game creators and content providers who are truly top in craft, right? People who we've all seen the work of, even if we didn't know they themselves were behind it. 
And when I do leadership and life coaching with them, and the reason I call it leadership and life coaching and not just leadership coaching or life coaching is because what goes on in your life is what goes on at work and what goes on work goes on in your life. Um, and so I get to work with people. I don't, I love working in industries where I know nothing about it. In fact, I generally lose jobs that are within my industries that I have worked in the past because I've actually had people in the industry say, I don't need someone who knows my industry. I know my industry. And I got that. That was a big learning lesson for me, by the way, as the reason I really thrived in some of these industries, like video gaming, I don't know the last time I even played a video game. Um, was because I trust that the people I'm working with uh, to coach my coaches, they know their jobs exceptionally well, and they do. Um, what I do is I help bring them perspective and clarity from their own minds, right? Because we all fall into traps. We tell ourselves stories. I'll call them here maps, right? The maps we the maps we're looking at is this is the map I had as a child. I'm I'm not worthy. I'm not intelligent. I'm not smart enough. I can't keep up. That was the map. That was a story. That wasn't facts. That was story. Yes, people could could read faster than me, but that the map was, the story was, I'm not as smart as everybody else. Um, and so that's what a leadership coach does is I just take super highly talented people and I help bring them clarity and perspective in their own lives by asking questions. And I want I feel it's important that I share this here. Because therapy and coaching are fine lines. And I'm not against therapy. I want that super clear. I have a therapist super helpful in my life. But therapy is focusing on the past and healing. So finding out, you know, as a child, I just didn't feel worthy, right? That's an important right. thing for me to realize. Right. Coaching is about I'm here right now and I want to get there. I might not even know where there is. I just know I'm here and I want to get there. And how big is the gap in between here and there? That's what a coach does. And so both therapy and um, leadership coaching uh, have concentric circles and some of the questions we'll ask or some of the skill sets we use, um, that's the difference. And I, that seems to help clarify to a lot of people when they ask me what I do. So if I'm an artist and I'm experiencing anxiety, how would the type of work that you do be helpful to me? Well, number one, let's start with, I, I stand very strongly on this and I've, um, Actually, I'm going to start with the story. Then I'm going to go into what I feel strongly about. So recently I was at an arts organization and I had probably 50 to 60 people in the room, uh, varying degrees of um, where they are in their professional careers. But they were all working uh, in, in the arts. They were all working people because it was one organization. And I said, how many of you are leaders? And about 10 people in the room raised their hand. And I said... I just want to make sure you guys heard the question. How many of you guys are leaders in the room? And the same 10 people raise their hand. Maybe someone else like tentatively raised their hand. And I said, well, okay, I'm glad I asked that question because now let's talk about what leadership is, right? There's a difference between management and there's a difference between leadership. There's a difference between a po politician and there's a difference between a leader. A leader's job is simply to build more leaders or to create an environment where, where others' leadership can flourish. So a child could essentially be a leader to their parent if they're create, the child is creating an environment for the parent 
where they can be the best parent. A parent can create, be a leader to their child by creating an environment for the child to be the best leader. And so even if you're entry level, you're a leader. And you can't lead another person until truly lead another person until you can lead yourself. And so we all have to be self-leaders. And the one thing that just blew my mind as I started working higher with, with really um, high-level professional executives is um, the, by the time they get to me, they want to learn about themselves, right? Like they're, no one's coming to me and being like, you know, I'm not the coach that people come to and they go, I want to make a million more dollars, but I don't care about people. Like I just, there's coaches for that. I'm just not that good. Co- like I will actually say, let me refer you to the guy up the street kind of thing. Right. So the people I'm working with is people who want to make a difference in the world, period, end of story. So the one thing I notice is people who are leaders, right? Even if they're not great at the technique behind leadership, they truly want to create a world and an environment where people can be their best. And I like to think in the arts, most people went into the arts because they want to give something to the world. I personally, I don't know about you, the the arts industry to me, it's a service-oriented industry. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, and I'm going to curse here. I think a lot of people fuck that one up. They think the industry is here to serve them or the audience is here to serve them. But I'm sorry. I don't know another way to look at it. The arts are a service oriented industry. And when the audience stands, (laughs) you and I've had this conversation before, when the audience (laughs) truly stands because they want to stand because there's nowhere else to go, it recognizes the audience, not the actor. It recognizes you as an ensemble or a performer or a musician have moved me so much. I have nothing left to do other than to stand. It recognizes how you moved me me how i was moved right because we only see ourselves through the eyes of other people and so the performer let them be the reflection so anyways a long way to say here's how leadership coaching or or life coaching or any of the above serve any performers here's what i find the people who are true leaders who really are there to serve other people to help bring the best out of them they're highly self-aware people I mean, they're super aware. They're aware to a fault. They're painfully aware. It might even cause tears. It might cause pain as they learn about themselves. But they want to be, I'm going to, a little Holden Caulfield, they want to be punched in the face. They want it with the blindfolds off. And I don't, I don't know how, you know, I learned to be an actor, even though I knew I never wanted to be an actor full time, which was sort of a back assward way of doing things. I just wanted to work in entertainment and I just didn't want to go to college. So I went to an acting conservancy because I didn't know what else to do. I think we all start out as actors, like everybody yeah. I know in the entertainment at one point in time yeah. was an actor, which I think is a wonderful thing, because when you train to be an actor, you learn so many important life skills that you can take and apply to many other things. Well, that's what got me. I'm not a dancer. In fact, talk about a story that I told myself in seventh grade. I'm going to say her name. I loved her, so I don't want to be disrespectful. But Mrs. Renahan told me I am not a dancer. And guess what I did? I believed her. If she never said that, I think I would have been a dancer. I really do. And dance has followed me. I have not followed dance. And so the reason I got involved in the dance comp world is because it was young. It was kids under 17. Ages, average age was probably about 13 to 16. And... um I was like, wow, what a platform. Most of these dancers, you know, I was hosting 40,000 dancers a year. 
less than 1%, less, way less than 1%, become professional dancers. But it's an opportunity that I saw to allow a young, a member of our, a young member of our, a young generation of our society to stand in front of people, allow themselves to use themselves as a tool, allow judges to criticize or critique them for us to learn from and allow teamwork and allow failure and learn how to fail humbly, allow how to win, learn how to learn how to fail uh, and, and lose after a win. I think those are amazing life skills. And like you said, I think the that's what got me into it is because I was like, everyone should, I, I'm a big believer, everyone should be somehow involved in the arts in their youth um, for the very Absolutely. reason we just said. Yeah. And I, and I think what happens is a lot of performers get locked into this idea of, oh, the rush of opening the show is great. But there's a different experience that I had when I first got my professional show. And I was like, wait, I have to do this eight times a week? This sort of sucks for me. Not for everyone, but for me. My artistry Likewise. wasn't. What's that? Likewise. That was not yeah, So you experienced it too? Yeah. But I loved company managing for the actors who said, I, eight shows a week isn't enough. Give me 12 shows a week. That's who I wanted to company manage for. And so every time I do a webinar seminar uh, for performers, so many people go, wait a second. My purpose in life isn't to be an actor. My purpose in life is to bring happiness, to bring fulfillment, to bring joy. And there's so many ways to do that. And maybe acting is one of those ways. But when you talk about anxiety, anxiety, well, first of all, anxiety happens when there's a massive incongruency, when where you are is not what you feel. That's incongruency. And that will create anxiety. Um, and I do, I just want to say this, this is, um, Guilt is anxiety about the past, and anxiety and fear is anxiety of the future. Whenever you feel anxious, I even, whenever I feel, whenever you feel anxious, it's because there's something unknown. That's it. I said something up in my mouth. Now I'm anxious because I don't know what the other person's gonna say. I just lost my job. Now I'm anxious because I don't know where the next paycheck's gonna come from. My boyfriend or girlfriend just left me. I don't know the next time someone will ever love me. Anxiety is fear of the uh, of the future. It's crazy. It's crazy. And and so if you can feel really st- going back to the question of like not trying to sell leadership coaching here, but it's the idea <laughs> of self-awareness. I'm selling the idea of self-awareness. However you w- wish to go about that. The more you're willing to look in the mirror and know yourself, the less anxiety there will be because if you know yourself, any any situation can um you know what you control and the only thing you can control in this world is your response to external stimulus. Ah, uh, control. It always comes back to control. <laughs> One of the things that seems to resonate with artists is our concern for what other people think of us and our need for others' approval. Can you share some of your thoughts on that? Yeah. I'm going to put artists aside for a second, and let's talk about humans. Humans are in search of three things constantly, and it's not humans. It's their ego. Um, it's our survival mechanism, right? We are looking for survive, um, survival. We're looking for approval. And we're looking for control and sort of like you 
you know, sort of laughed at before control, right? It all stems from control, right? Because anxiety is about, I don't have control of my emotions. I don't have control of my employment. I don't have control of my finances. I don't have control of my spouse. I don't have control of my child. There's anxiety. I don't have control of how my, how I'm going to feel tomorrow morning. That's anxiety. And so I think everyone has a desire I think, let me rephrase that. I think all healthy adults have a desire for some form of approval. I think some have, a lot of people have built a tolerance for not being approved of, right? You know, I I had to certainly learn that tolerance really well, but I had to learn myself to understand that tolerance. And as performers in general, having understood the industry pretty well, there's often a lack of security, financial security. There's often a lot of lack of security of, are my parents going to approve of this? Or is my spouse or lover going to approve of this? Because it's a, it, it, it is, um, I don't know, what's the word we should use? I don't want to say it's an unstable industry. It's an unpredictable industry, right? Uh Right. And so there's there's the approval part. And then there's the well, not only am I a person, not only am I the CEO, but I'm the product. And every time this product gets rejected, how do I separate myself from the product? And I'm really careful with this internally because I am the brand, right? The legacy of you, which you mentioned at the top of the show, is just the company. The product is me. And so I'm very clear with all my team members that when we sit around and make decisions, I said, we will refer to this as the MIC brand, right? The Michael Ian Cedar brand. And I'm okay. That helps me separate me from my, my soul and spirit from the product. Super challenging to do. But right. So there's one tech check mark against artists of how approval is even a little more prominent because we've got to recognize there's me, the person, and me, the product. Super hard to do. Super hard to separate that out. And then the third thing is control. Well, as actors, ain't much control there most of the time with how you're in this, right? You can't say, hey, I'll take a lower level job. You know, like you just need to get the job, right? right. Even directors, <laughs> uh, limited control. Uh, producers, super limited control of who's going to give them money or if the show's going to work. I mean, you know, my deepest sincerity to all performers during the time of COVID, right? Because they've approvals out the window. Now you got no security and control. And so they're all, so the approval thing, it's all tied in to, if I'm not approved of, I don't have control of my finances because I don't get the word. If I'm not approved of, I don't have financial security. And so it's a really vicious cycle that occurs, which is why I highly encourage anyone in the arts, because of the unpredictability, to get to know themselves, why they're there, why it's important to be a performer or artist or actor or musician or whatever that Learn is. Learn your why or figure out your why. Yeah, as- I am so a Simon Sinek fan. Actually, when I saw Simon Sinek do his famous TED Talk, I went, well, he said it better than me, and he said it more succinct than me. Bravo. When, when performing arts schools or schools that support the industries uh, that, are, that are contained in the performing arts, figure out how to 
educate their student body on why are they here in the first place, there'll be better art in the world. I mean, the amount of performers who I've worked with, both as a coach and as a company manager, who either got the tour or ended up going to Broadway or got the dream job, who are depressed and upset and angry and bitter is way too many um, in my personal experience. It's like, you know, I hate this joke, but I see it true often of how, what's the quick, you ever hear the joke, what's the quickest way to make an actor complain? How? Give him a job. And now I'm saying that is it's not a generalization, but I'm saying I've seen way too many times somebody get to Broadway and go, I'm still unhappy. I'm still unfulfilled. I still don't have the love I wanted. Right. I'm not saying everybody. I'm just speaking that. And so that will create anxiety by itself because now I've done what I want and I don't have security, approval, or control. Maybe I have the approval, but I don't have security. And maybe you don't get the approval because once you get the job, then there's all kinds of criticism coming from your production stage manager, coming from whoever it's going to come from, coming from the leading lady, whatever, you know? So I think there's a great need to understand your purpose in life. Uh, I do believe everyone has a purpose in life. It is not to be an actor. It is not to be a doctor. It is not to be a lawyer. It is a value. My purpose in life is to help free people from their limiting beliefs. I believe that if I help more people from limiting beliefs, um, the world will have more harmony. And maybe one day, just for giggles and shits, I'll go back and be an actor for one show just to say if the show fits my mantra of does this free people. Right. Um, So we touched on this a little bit earlier, but you and I both started out as actors before we transitioned into our current careers. And you and I have spoken about um, the anxiety that we experienced um, and the thoughts and feelings that that went along with transitioning out of something that we had had identified ourselves with for so yeah, long. Yeah. Um, so can we talk a little bit about, um, about the transitions and the thoughts and the feelings that went along with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I do I do need to give the disclaimer of. I did go through a period of time where I went, oh, my gosh, I'm not an actor. You know, actually, for me, it was, oh, my gosh, I'm not a theater guy. I'm a personal growth guy. That was a huge change for me. And so I always knew I was out to save the world, right? I always knew I was out to heal. I never had the words behind it. and But there was a struggle, right? Because I do see this a lot. And I'm teaching a course right now called Life on Your Terms. And um, really impressed. I have a lot of performers in it. And really impressed with the honesty the performers are giving themselves, um, saying, oh, my gosh, acting is just a way for me to do something. It is not who I am. I've seen a lot of people in the arts. I've seen a lot of people in a lot of industries, but a lot of people in the arts because they are the product. Put their worth and value into their job. And that is so unhealthy, I think. Yep. (laughs) If you had your identity wrapped up in what you do, what's left if you are not blank? 
So if you identify, if your identity is, I am an actor, and um, you're not acting, then then what's that going to do to security, approval, and control? That will create anxiety. And um, and that goes for working actors, too, because what happens in the times I'm not acting, like I said? And so, again, we come back to this need to understand, well, really, what do you want to do? Well, I want to be a Broadway actor. Well, really, what do you want to do? Well, I want to make people laugh. Well, really, what do you want to do? And I, you know, I am a big fan of why is the sky blue? Well, because God made it that way. Well, why did God make it that way? Well, because the eyeball can only see a certain amount of range of colors and the sky is the furthest, so blue is the furthest. Well, why did why can the eye only see? I'm a big fan of constantly going down and going, well, why? Well, why? Well, why? Well, why? You know, even me saying, hey, I really want to free people. Those are still just words. They mean nothing. You know, it, it, I just intrinsically know what I want to bring to the world. And I can do that as an actor. I can do that as a coach. I can do that as a bar mitzvah MC. I can do that as a waiter serving tables. I could do that as a guy on the street with a cardboard sign that says free hugs. I could do that opening a lemonade stand. I can do that any which way. Now, do I want to do them in things that bring me joy and are fun and rewarding? F, yes, I do. If we're reflections, we can't understand in others the characters we're playing, the artists we're playing the music of. We can't understand in others what we don't understand in ourselves. And I want to say that again because it's super, I'm, I'm crafting those words super easy, carefully. You can't meaning impossible to understand in others what you don't understand in yourself. Notice I'm not saying you can't understand in yourself. Coming up, having a spiritual bypass and finding freedom in disappointing others. Have you ever heard the phrase spiritual bypass? No, do tell. Oh, I never heard of it either. And I heard it and it took me a few minutes to wrap my head around it. And I went, oh my gosh, spiritual bypasses. Here we are looking for enlightenment. And so we'll take the gemstone and we'll wear it around our neck and we'll be enlightened. Or we'll meditate for hours and we'll feel calm in there and we'll feel at peace with ourselves and being enlightened. And so I'm not against gemstones and I'm not against meditation, but if you rely solely on external tools to bring you enlightenment and teachings and peace, you're, you're, it's a spiritual bypass. You've got to do the work first on yourself. You've got to be able to flip the switch and look at the lights in the closet and go, oh, there's no boogeyman here. There's just some childhood trauma. Or there's no boogeyman here. My teachers just told me I was stupid. Or there's no boogeyman here. My seventh grade choreographer said I can't dance. Right? And then we start to go, oh, okay, I get it, which is why I'm a fan of therapy and coaching. They're just two totally different sets of skills. And, and a good therapist could also be a go- good coach, and a good coach could offer, I can't say it could substitute because you have to be a very, you know, go through very specific training. But, you know, if the person's good, it will possess traits of a therapist. And so sometimes just talking to a friend, journaling, reading books, being willing to look in the mirror, facing yourself, that's, that's the work. 
That's not spiritual bypass. That's the work. Hoping that your yoga instructor will solve your problems is a spiritual bypass. Looking in the mirror is the work. So going back to uh, what you were talking about earlier, where it was when you went through your divorce that you discovered you had a tremendous amount of anxiety. Can you talk about that and where, how, how did you discover that? How did you um, change, make change for the positive there? But there's something out there called nice guy syndrome. And there's, of course, a counterpart to that of nice girl syndrome. I was so afraid of disappointing people that uh, I would stay in relationships well past their expiration date. Um because I didn't want to hurt the other person. And so my professional and personal life came to a halting crash as I got married. I didn't want to disappoint my partner at the time, my girlfriend at the time, and say, hey, this isn't right, you know, stuff like that. I'm willing to take my my fair share of why that didn't work, which is more than enough share to be taken. And um, what I learned was uh, I was so scared of the approval of everybody else. I tied my security in life to the approval of others and that it uh, made me make some really bad life decisions uh getting in a relationship that it probably should have just been a really nice friendship or romance and and not allowing myself to go oh no 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 this isn't working or whatever and i did that with a lot of relationships so i can't just say it was one but there was a time that came where um i just had to grow up And I had to go, what's important to me? What's my non-negotiables? And I realized there's no way in any world am I going to find somebody that I'm going to be able to love and that would be willing to love me if I'm not willing to disappoint them. I just think one of the most cruel things we could do to another person is try to protect them from being disappointed. So as I started to put myself on a little regiment of disappointing people, just trying it out, I went, oh, okay, the person's still here. The world hasn't crashed. I'm still complete and whole. I don't have a lot of anxiety around a lot now. I sometimes get really bad in my head. I did the other day. So there's no avoiding it because we are human and we are negative biased creatures. We are designed to find where's the threat. And, ooh, if somebody thinks poorly of me, there's a threat. I could be ousted. You know, I could be an outcast. So it's never going to go away. So you run something called the Gratitude Slam. Tell us about that. It's a group focused on focusing on the positive side of life and positive attitude. Again, that doesn't mean you can't feel pain or feel sad, doesn't or, or feel sadness. In fact, it promotes feeling. It, it it promotes feeling the sadness, but going like I did with, you know, my my middle school crush. Um what do I do with this sadness? I'm grateful that my system is working, that there's indicators here, that I got to grieve someone, that I got to love somebody and go. So it's a, it's a group that's tr- that's to build the habit of what do I have right now? Because here's something that I think a lot of people who go, a lot of art, a lot of people say this in general, but a lot of artists go, I should be further along in my career. I should have been on Broadway by now. I should have been st- uh, uh, you know, a leading lady by now. I should have, I should have, and they should all over themselves. And here's the thing. What, wherever you are, 
That's the only place you have to go from. It's the only launch pad you can launch from. It's the only diving board you can jump into the pool from. So maybe you, you, you could have been, maybe you shouldn't have been, maybe you could have. It doesn't matter. It's a waste of energy and that, you know, to should all over yourself. So the Gratitude Slam is a group designed to say, where am I now? Where do I want to go? What do I have now? And it's just a series of questions and live videos I do um, on a daily basis. But it dissolves the anxiety because it gives you certainty. Well, I do have a roof. Well, I do have $5. Well, I do have a dog with two legs, but it's still a dog that loves me, right? Because you get to go, well, what do I have? And there's so much research around the science of what gratitude does. Gratitude actually rewires the brain. It actually, there, it creates what's called neuroplasticity. It creates more flexibility in the brain. If you wake up in the morning and you go, it's going to be a crappy day because I don't have a lot of blank money, love, relationships, whatever. Your brain's going to go, oh, you want to look for what we don't have? I'm going to shove that up your nose until there's no more space. But if you can start to build the habit of going, what do I have? I've got this and this. And now the brain goes, oh, gratitude. You want me to find things that we should be appreciative of? No problem. I'll do that for you. And so you you hit a fork in the road every day you wake up or every moment something happens. And you can go, I can focus on what I don't have. I can focus on I don't have the acting job. I can focus on I don't have the money I thought I would have by now. Or you can focus on what do I have right now and how can I build from there? Friend, thank you so much for being here today. It was really, it was really wonderful to hear from you. It was great hearing from you. And I'm glad we did not do a spiritual bypass. Right? (laughs) That's our show for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks to my guest, Michael Ian Cedar. For more information on Michael's work, including The Legacy of You and The Gratitude Slam, head on over to our website, anxietyandtheartist.com. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and share. Until next time, be healthy and stay creative. Anxiety and the Artist is produced by Grosta Productions and recorded at Homestead Studios. Music and engineering is by Bosco Chef. This podcast represents the opinions of Allison Chef and her guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for information purposes only. And because each person is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions.